This young lady over here in the tank top is uh, my partner Danielle. We are the proprietors for Hidden Track Bottle Shop. Uh, I don't know if y'all saw it, but it's a little lobby bottle shop downstairs. After the event, or if you really need to go buy us out during the event, uh, just let us know. We'll let you guys into the shop. We're going to extend a 15% discount off of any uh, bottles purchased today. Um, and then uh, I'll also hand you guys out some postcards too. And hopefully y'all come back and shop here. We also have a wine club available. I'm not going to get into a big sales pitch or anything like that, but we, uh, as proprietors of wine shop, we really truly got into the business as a hobby-ish. I'm actually a wine broker by trade, but we live in the downtown area, and this was a major hobby. It was a, something that we needed downtown so we could go and buy our wine. And we want to be able to provide the, the community with great wines that you're not going to see all over the place at really good prices. So. Uh, We'd love it if you'd support our hobby. Our hobby is going to go ahead and support you. We're going to give you awesome wines and bring awesome events like this event uh, today as much as possible. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce Mr. Cody, the wine monk, uh, the, the, the myth, the legend, in person, in kilt. How uh, <laughs> kilt will travel. There we go. It's kind of expected of me at this point, too, for those of you who really know me, like Carla and Scott. So, I'm Cody. I'm the wine monk. Um, I got into this kind of by accident um, because I was working for Passion Cellars in Jerome and I decided that I wanted to get to know my fellow wineries very, very well. Um, I got into wine actually when I was 15 years old due to watching too much Fraser growing up. Um, a random freak Aurora Borealis on a camping trip and a really good bottle of Chianti Classico. Um, so I've been drinking wine since I've been 15, been drinking Arizona wine since I was 21 when I was, you know, old enough to actually visit the wineries for myself without a fake ID. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, so I worked for Passion Cellars, decided to start trying everyone else's wines, just so that way I could have a better understanding of what the terroir and palette was like, more than I already had. Then uh, The Noise, which was uh, the arts and leisure newspaper of the Verde Valley, contacted me, seeking uh, a wine column. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. So my cellar started growing and growing and growing, and then one day I sat and looked at my cellar, which had grown to about 40 bottles at this point, and I went, if I'm gonna do this continuously, I have way too many bottles. I need to drink more, followed by, I should start a blog. And so that's how I got involved and started the Arizona Wine Monk blog. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So we're gonna stretch you off today with the Willow White from DA Ranch. DA Ranch is located uh, in northern Arizona near Cornville. It's on the same road as Page Springs and Havelina Lee and Oak Creek, but it's tucked away. Um, they're very sort of private. You've got to make a sort of private invitation to go there, which I highly recommend. Some of the best wines in the Verde. It's also the only place in Arizona which grows this weird grape, Saval Blanc, which this Willow White is 100% Saval Blanc, aged in steel. The winemaker for this was Eric Glomsky. Um, future vintages from DA are going to be made by the Tumbleweed crew, uh, Joe Bouchard, Chris Potier, and so on. So here's why Saval Blanc is a very weird grape. And where did my glass go? Oh, it's right in front of me. Hmm? See, I'd lose my own head if it weren't attached to my body. The only thing I really know is wine. Everything else, I'm kind of clueless. So the reason why Saval Blanc is very strange is because it's a hybrid varietal. So, Back in the 1800s, there was a phylloxera epidemic. Now, phylloxera is this little root louse that eats away grapevines. 
the vines that were native to the Americas were immune to it because they grew up with it. They evolved with it. When the, some of these vines were transplanted as gifts to European countries from America, they were like, oh, good, fresh food. I have, they have no defenses against us. So all these vineyards started getting wiping, wiped out in France. That's what happened to Carmenera, actually. We don't have a Carmenera here. There's only one vineyard in Arizona that's growing it. Carmenera got completely wiped out in Europe because of this past, and a few other varietals became extinct. What some people decided to do was to try and breed these native European varietals with American varietals to create something that would create a good wine, but wouldn't get eaten alive. So this is what happened. This is where Saval Blanc originated. It started as a hybrid between Viognier and a Labrusca varietal. It has one of those classic things that you get in a lot of American hybrid varietals. If you smell it, you'll detect this almost sort of like cream character, like sort of like a cream cheese or brie. This is a characteristic that's known among those who know as sort of a foxy character. Um, if you're really a wine snob, most people don't like that. The American varietals, hybrid varietals, have gotten bad rap, but I find them to be particularly enjoyable, especially this guy. It's got a really nice crisp acidity on the palate. And it's beautifully balanced. A little bit of cream character intermingles with the citrus and sharpness on the palate. That just makes this a really, really great summer white. It's also one of the few varietals in Arizona that you could, if you wanted to, and DA Ranch has, make a sweet dessert wine from. And here's why it's really hard to make a dessert wine in Arizona. Oh, well, there's no monsoon There's no monsoon clouds behind me now, but then we'll be later, give them time. It is all tied in with the monsoon. Because in order to make a sweet wine here in Arizona, you can't rely on what Canada and New York do, which is, oh, winter's coming, ice. Not gonna work. So what you have to do is what California does, which is let those grapes sit on the vine longer. During the monsoon, though, you run that real risk of if you do that too long, either A, a giant microburst coming and wiping out your entire vineyard, or a hailstorm, which has happened a couple times in Sonoida over the years, and in Wilcox, various places. Caligan got hit about four years really hard by that, for example. Or, just because of the rain, the rain seeps into those clusters of grapes, and the little microorganisms that are naturally on these grapes go a little crazy with the moisture, start eating away the grapes, produce this rot. And when you try to make a wine with that rot, except with a certain kind of rot, which is a side panel uh, for sauternes, which no one's tried that out here because that sort of, that particular um, bacteria, fungus, doesn't live out here in Arizona. So no one is going to do it. Um, well, no one yet. I wouldn't put it past somebody to try um, just because that's the beautiful thing about the Arizona wine industry right now is that everyone's trying something different. You're going to get different tastes and different grapes and different explorations of different terroir today. Going back to topic. Um, I like the Sauval Blanc. I think that uh, Sauval Blanc has gotten kind of a bad rap because it's a very popular grape in the Midwest. And everyone poo-poos the Midwest wine industry. What people forget is that actually... Missouri and Kansas were some of the earliest areas where you were growing grapes in America. And um, Saval Blanc is pretty popular there. But I actually think, and this is just my personal opinion, but we're, you're here listening to me, so it's the opinion that matters. Saval Blanc in Arizona is better than that that's grown in the Midwest. And I think that this could be the unsung underdog grape of the Arizona wine industry. So VAR only DA Ranch is growing it. So if you want an Arizona Saval Blanc, 
You got to go to DA Ranch. Um, I think S E V A L space B L A N C. There is also a Saval Noir, but that's mostly found in Canada. So enjoy this wine for a moment. I want to hear what you guys are tasting on the palate, too. Don't let me lionize it. I want some interaction between you guys. You need more? I didn't have any. Oh, oh god, I'm so sorry. No worries. Craig, did you get any? Okay. Did anyone not get any, by the way? Did anyone like this so much that they want a little bit more? <laughs> so what are you guys tasting in this wine? Sorry, say again? Talking about the first taste that I took, you can taste it right away. Like the first. That sort of creaminess? Yeah, yeah the butter. It's weird because normally you get that only in whites when you're doing malolactic fermentation, which is something that no Arizona winery is really doing with their whites. That's how you get that creamy, buttery characteristic in California Chardonnay. But no one's really tried that with whites in Arizona. Um, my understanding is that. Uh, one winemaker in Arizona is going to be trying that next year with a barrel fermented Chardonnay aged in new oak, so it'll be in very much a Napa style Chard. I can't say who or more than information than that. Uh, the thing with being the wine monk is a lot of people confess things to me and they say, oh, you can say this, but you can't tell me who said this or can't tell people who said this. So it's more like being a priest than I thought, which, oh, that's something I should have mentioned. The reason why I call myself the wine monk, story time again. Once upon a time, I was actually studying to be a Greek Orthodox priest. I got better. <laughs> uh, I went to seminary in Boston. It's the only two years I've ever lived out of state. And I realized that this is really not what I feel cut out to do. Um, I am horribly sarcastic, horribly irrational, not irrational, horribly irreverent, um, prone to making very bad jokes about things that I shouldn't joke about. Um, also, not fond of the communion wine uh, that was being used in a lot of places because uh, in the Orthodox Church we do believe the, the body and blood are true, and I really don't feel that Christ should do all the heavy lifting of the wine. <laughs> okay, oh, that was a really bad religious joke. Thank you. So anyway, Sauvignon Blanc, DA Ranch is the only place that's growing it. Uh, my understanding is that there's going to be a few more acres of this planted in Chino Valley in the next three years. Uh, Chino Valley is kind of the unknown frontier in Arizona winemaking. I'm just going to step aside for this, even though we don't have anything from that region. Sonoida is the oldest region. Chino Valley is the newest. Uh, Chino Valley has a particularly interesting geology, and I'm going to get into the geology of what makes this wine particularly interesting, or I should say this vineyard particularly interesting, later when we get to the Cabaratanat. Um, also from the same vineyard. Spoilers. Um, Cody, for those not from Arizona, where, what is the Chino Valley? Chino Valley is uh, basically, it's a valley. Uh, on the other side of the Black Hills, you've got the edge of the Maguillon Rim here to the north and a few other mountains to the east. It's about 20 miles north of Prescott. Um, north of the Granite Dells, the soils there are very similar to Burgundy. You have a lot of limestone intermingled with uh, clay, uh, alluvial soil from the erosion of the mountains, and also lava flows. 
So all these create a very Burgundian soil characteristic. So your Burgundian varietals, like Pinot Noir, like Chardonnay, Pinot Meunier, um, also some hybrid varietals that are more adapted to colder climates, because it is the coldest wine region in Arizona, um, will do very well there. And it's an area that seemed, for me, for years to be a no-brainer, but no one was doing it other than uh, Granite Creek Winery. Um, and now Del Rio Springs is really pioneering it, and they have, in my opinion, the best Pinot Noir I have ever tasted in the U.S. Um, yeah, that's... And when I started reviewing wines, I was... I said once, um, if I ever find a good Pinot Noir from Arizona, I will eat my hat, and that's why I have the bowler hat now, because back then I had a fedora. I tried this, and I was like, hey, Rick, you got any ketchup? I need to eat my hat. And so I, not literally, but I retired the hat as to prove that I am a man of my word. Isn't Erath doing some Pinots here now? Um, here in Arizona, as far as I'm aware, no. Um, but he is in Oregon in his property there. He, he bought property down here. Yeah, he did buy a couple of acres near, um, near Cimarron Vineyard, okay. uh, which is um, Todd Bostock's, Wilcox Vineyard. I think Bodega Pierce has. Bodega Pierce is growing Pinot down there. Um, Sonoida Vineyards is growing Pinot in Sonoida. Um, there is also some Pinot Noir in um, the other side of Wilcox at um, Stronghold site over there. I'm trying to remember what the name of it. Um, Benito Springs. Pinot is also grown on House Mountain in the Verde Valley. Um, I haven't tasted any Pinot from there, but I did help pick that a couple of years ago. Uh, most of that Pinot actually went into the latest Vintage of the Mule's Mistake, which while I helped bottle, I did not taste it yet. Almost bought a bottle of that, but we've got plenty of wine, I think, to, to see us through. Speaking of which, are we ready to move on to the next wine, guys? Any further questions on the Saval? All right. Can I, can I add, add a little point in? Yes. Those of you who taste that Sauvignon Blanc familiarly, it comes from the uh, same growing region as a distinct uh, uh, near ancestor of the Saval Blanc, actually. Saval Blanc, uh, there is a form of that that grows in Friuli in Italy, so that Sauvignon Blanc. If you look at the history of wine, how it progressed and moved across into the New World, uh, you're basically, your first wine today uh, came from the same region that some of that Saval Blanc came from. So next up, we're going down to Wilcox. This is the Pandora, not to be confused with the planet from uh, the movie. Guys, as you can see, it's not blue, it's white. So the Pandora is a blend made by Michael Pierce out at Seculum Cellars. 50% uh, Pinot Gris, or the, which is the same grape as Pinot Grigio. It's also got 35%, sorry, 35% um, um, Sauvignon Blanc. And it also has 15% of my very favorite white grape in Arizona. Um, the grape that's affectionately known by those who know me really well as the wine monk's girlfriend, Malvasia Bianca. Now we don't have a full Malvasia here today. Um, but Malvasia, when it's in a wine, makes itself always known. It is very obvious, very upfront, very forward. And I'll show you what I mean by that here in just a moment once I approach my own glass. Now here's a fun fact also about Pinot Grigio that probably most people I know don't know this. Pinot Grigio is actually a red grape. 
But, oh, did you want to use a different glass? Because I had some of the Saval in it. It's our first rodeo. I thought, I thought it's okay. <laughs> so, Pinot Grigio is actually a red grape, but no one makes a red wine from it. The reason being is that it doesn't hold its color very well, and if you try, you can make it into a Pinot Grigio Rosé, which is what Havelina Leap has done. Uh, Passion Cellars just released in their tasting room also a uh, Pinot Grigio made as a rosé. And you'll see it a lot in Italy. But most people make it as a white. And I feel it's generally better as a white, except in certain places. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, as we encountered one from Italy, um, originally comes sort of from Bordeaux. And then we've got Malvasia Bianca, which has an interesting story. First, let's explore in the nose. So you get that sort of almost bright floral elderflower, um, lavender, and herbaceous note on the nose. That's imparted by the Malvasia Bianca. Sauvignon Blanc doesn't have that characteristic. Pinot Grigio doesn't have that characteristic. So story time again. Malvasia Bianca as a grape originally came from where I'm going in two days. Um, it was grown in the outskirts of Constantinople, it was grown in Greece, grown in Turkey. Um, it was a very popular white wine in the Byzantine Empire, often exported. What happened was in Provo, four the Crusaders came and crashed the party. Uh, one of the things they took back to, with them to Venice as spoils were Malvasia Bianca vines. So it came forth into Italy, came forth later into Spain, later became one of the grapes of Madeira. Also, it was very prominent in, in, in the middle of in the Middle Ages because it was easy to make as a sweet wine and sweet wines traveled better. Now, if you know your Shakespeare, and you know Richard III, you know that uh, a couple of dukes were drowned in what he terms as vats of Malmsey. That was Malvasia. So, if you're looking for wine to kill a rebellious duke, Malvasia is your go-to. And I have to say, drowning in Malvasia is probably the way I would go. So on the palate of this wine, the notes imparted by the Malvasia are also very prominent here, but they're also intermingling quite playfully with a little bit almost of star fruit imparted by the Sauvignon Blanc, and a little bit of crisp green apple and pear, which is imparted by the Pinot Grigio. These are pear, is something that I get in a lot of Arizona Pinot Grigio. You get also that very nice star fruit that you get in New Zealand also in Arizona, Sauvignon Blanc. But interestingly enough here, when it comes to Sauvignon Blanc, a lot of them combine characteristics. Um, take, for example, a Sauvignon Blanc I had recently from one of the wineries in northern Arizona. It had that classic star fruit and passion fruit nose and palate that you get in New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc. But also had this really nice smoky earth and almost like slightly smoked chipotle peppers, which is something I get in a lot of Bordeaux. Now, when I say slightly smoked chipotle peppers, it's not overwhelming. Um, it's just there in the background, providing sort of the base of where all these other palette notes are intermingling. Um, but here, those characteristics combine. It's something in the soil and the climate here that allows those stereotypical characteristics of different climates you would never expect to intermingle. They do. Um, it's also tied into the geology, too, I think. Now, when it comes to Wilcox, the geology there, very much alluvial plain, used to be an ancient lake bed. Um, a lot of the vineyards are being grown on a region known as the Wilcox Bench, which was actually the shoreline of that ancient lake. 
So there you had all of that alluvial soil from the mountains intermingling with lake sediments mixing together. And that's what creates that really unique soil there. That's also why it's a little bit higher than Wilcox, because that was a lake shore. So it was a lake, you think, not an inland sea? Or well, the inland sea part of Wilcox goes back even further. Uh, Wilcox also used to be underwater at the same time that those red rocks of Sedona were forming. Um, I was going to get into this later, but we're here now. Um, this is what makes the Verde Valley unique in terms of that, because you have that byplay of the ancient ocean and shore there preserved in stone. Later then, you had a volcano erupting on top of it that got buried by a lake. And then the lake sediments permeated and that minerality seeped into the basalt. Because that basalt is harder than the limestone that was formed by the Verde Formation, it all eroded away, exposing the red rocks, exposing the volcano. The House Mountain vineyards, like DA Ranch, they preserve that balance. And in some of them, you almost get this characteristic set that is like, and this is in the red, and you're going to get this in the Tanakh. So I'm going to spoil that ahead a little bit. You get this rich sort of spice, which is like the volcano, this intense dryness that is reminiscent of the desert, and you almost get this whiff of the ocean air coming through, um, which is, of course, like the ancient sea. And it's just for some reason, those vineyards in the Verde Valley pick up all that geologic history. And just, if you know what you're looking for, and now that you know, you'll find it, they show up, and it's amazing. And that's why I love that region so much, because it tells you, the wines there tell you of the geologic history of that landscape better than almost any other wine region I've ever had. And there's only one region of the world that is very similar to the Verde Valley in terms of Tawar. Well, one and a half regions. Um, Cappadocia and Turkey have some of the same characteristics, but without the ocean bed, or rather, without the uh, lake bed that covered it. But there's one place in the world that has that almost exact same geological history, and that is the Becca Valley in Lebanon. Um, and on that note, it's very hard for me to tell the difference between a Verde Valley Syrah and a Becca Valley Syrah because that geologic history is so similar. And that's the best way to fool me in a blind tasting is to say you're pouring in Arizona and be like, guess again, this is Lebanese. And I'll be like, <laughs> you tricked me. So anyway. Not a word good for seminary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so another thing that this wine shows us is that there's a very common thing in Arizona that isn't so common in California. Here in Arizona, we like blends. Blends are more of a European style of winemaking in California. We're going to encounter that again a little bit later with the first red we're doing today, um, which will be Emotiva, also from the same winemaker, also from the same vineyards as this. Um, California, they're very, very fond of expressing one variety. I wish I teach you guys how I, how I appreciate wine, too. Well, we'll get there. We've got enough wines to do that. Um, but in Europe, blends are big. Blends are what's king. And here in Arizona, I've noticed that we go for more of that European blend palette versus saying, let's express what one grape is doing from this vineyard, whether it's good or not. Here in Arizona, it's like, what tastes best? Which is why, in my opinion, as someone who drinks a lot of wine, not just from here, but from everywhere else, too, um, if you really want to know everything I'm drinking, follow me on Instagram. I document every single wine I've ever drinking. Um, I get to, a couple of my friends have said that they worry about me because of how much wines I post. As long as you're drinking good wine. You know. Exactly. Well, going back on that tangent. <laughs> or just wine in general. 
mostly wine. A couple of years ago, um, for 4th of July, we did what I called the American Varietals Party, which was basically cheap wine, American hybrids, and fast food was our theme. And so, of course, I had to get Concord as a grape out on the way on my list. And we're, my goal was to drink 200 and some odd different varietals of wine over the course of my life. I'm building up my palate so that way I can recognize everything. Which means I have to get some of the odd ones and bad ones out of the way, like Concord. So, of course, as a joke, someone brought a bottle of Manischewitz. <laughs> I cried. So next up, we're going into the Rhone, um, which is a very classic heartland of grapes, one of those classic heartlands going back into the Middle Ages, with Viognier. So this is also made by Michael Pierce. Uh, this is coming from Rolling View Vineyards again, uh, like our last wine. Your glass is empty. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to bump your head there. Could have been worse, I could have bumped your head with a bottle. So Viognier, So the maker for this guy, the Viognier, it's Michael Pierce. Michael Pierce is one of the coolest guys in the Arizona industry, and this is because he is also in charge of winemaking and teaching winemaking at the uh, Yavapai College program, which is the premier winemaking program in the American Southwest. It's also the only winemaking program in the Southwest, so it's an overly narrow superlative. But he's one of the best teachers there. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, and he makes some really good wine. Now, the story of his vineyard um, and how he got into the industry is actually covered by my article in the latest issue of the Arizona Wine Lifestyle. Uh, suffice it to say, he grew up in Arizona, an Arizona native, uh, practiced winemaking with his father, decided that they wanted to do winemaking on their own, so they took a few courses at UC Davis. He harvest surfed a little bit here and there, came back, they bought the old Crop Circle Vineyard, which used to be owned by John Marcus. John Marcus was one of the pioneers of Arizona winemaking. He was also the first guy to grow in the Verde Valley. Um, but he fell and broke his hip, and everything kind of fell by the wayside there. Um, he also designs his own labels. He's actually a little bit of a graphic designer, and so this is a really damn sexy label. Um, speaks to the really sexy characteristics in this wine. Viognier is one of my favorite varietals in Arizona. In my opinion, it's one of my top five favorite varietals in Arizona. And I forgot you guys again. You guys need to stand more with everybody else. I feel so bad. I mean, you guys are the ones that made this all possible, and I keep forgetting you. Did anyone not get this wine, by the way? Raise your hand. Okay. So Viognier is a grape. Um, comes from the Rhone Valley. There's some discussion and arguments whether like Syrah originally came from Lebanon and was brought back, or whether it's native to the Rhone. We'll get into that more with uh, the Syrah when we get there. Now, Vignier in Arizona, um, this particular wine was aged on neutral French oak for a year. Unfined, unfiltered. Now, what that means, if you look at the back of this bottle, to fine a wine, you often add in like egg whites or isinglass. These are all animal products. It picks out certain impurities in the wine. You rack it, and all of those fall to the bottom, and then you rack the wine off of that. Unfiltered, you filter it before bottling. It removes more impurities, some of the extra yeast, and so on and so forth. Um, what that means is if you don't do these things, the wine is vegan. So, yes, 
wines can be vegan, but not all of them. And the beautiful thing is if you're a vegan or vegetarian here in Arizona, um, you can drink most of our wines because most of our wines are unfined and or unfiltered. Uh, side note, which is a personal choice for a lot of the Arizona wineries. They just, the winemakers like their wines better that way. They feel it better expresses the nature and quality of the terroir and landscape. So how I approach a wine. The first thing I do, I hold it up to the light or a white surface, and I look at what color it is. Now I know that seems silly, although this is obviously a white wine. Um, which, well, yeah, duh, it is. But the color, because it's a little bit darker than the Sauvage Blanc and the Pandora that we had earlier, tells me that this is going to be a little bit more full-bodied. This is something that is very normal for Viognier. Um, now, if I was going to look at the edge, you know, it would tell me how old this wine is. This is very obviously new because that color is uniform. Um, when you look at an older red, like say a Barolo from Italy, that's been aging for in your cellar for 20 years because you're finally paid off your student loans and you've had this bottle in your cellar for years to celebrate. Well, at least this is what I hope will happen to me eventually. Um, yeah, exactly. Right on the border of the wine. See how that's more or less the same color as what's underneath? If this was an older wine, um, A, this would be darker, it would be more closer to orange. This is also true in reds. Um, and then you'll see a color shift the older a wine is. It'll be more red or more brick red versus the purplish red that you see normally. So then I smell. So I stick my nose into the glass, take a big sniff. Now I want you guys, since I'm teaching how to do this, tell me what you're smelling. Let's start with this table. Arbitrarily. <coughs> Say again? Yes, there's a lot of fruit. What else are you guys smelling? Floral. Floral? Now can you identify the flowers? No. What about you guys? What are you getting on the nose of this Viognier? Flowers? Flowers and citrus. So we got citrus, what about you guys? So these are all pretty normal characteristics for Viognier across the board. Now for me, because I have to write all this stuff down and use very floral language, pun intended, because there's flower notes in this wine, I would say that this wine to me smells of a little bit of jasmine, honeysuckle. I've got the lemon citrus, sort of a lemon star fruit thing. I'm getting a little bit of peaches and apricot, but they're largely buried under that floral nose. Then what I do, I open up the wine. They taught me how to do this in seminary, by the way. I'm mostly kidding. And we're gonna do this, when we um, pour the Tanat, we're gonna be doing that for quite a bit because that Tanat is very young, young and tannic, but we'll get there when we get there. And then I smell it again. I take note of, are there different notes now that have, opened, that have emerged since this wine has been opened up? And I want you guys to tell me if it smells massively different. Not massively, okay. a little bit, it does. Not as sweet? Yeah. A lot of those floral notes have kind of faded away, and now it's more fruity in my perspective. Very good. You've touched upon the Wilcox minerality, which is something that I use, I'll explain that here in a minute, um, that I can really taste in any Wilcox white that allows me to kind of distinguish it from any other Wilcox, or I should say any other region in Arizona. 
And we'll get to that in a moment. Then, what I do, I taste. If you can, aerate in your mouth, which it's like sucking in without swallowing, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, gosh, that sounded a little dirty, actually. I apologize. And then I just take note of what I taste. Now, what she was talking about was this sort of flinty character, which you'll find at the very finish of this one. It's sort of almost flint dust limestone thing. So that's imparted by the soils in Wilcox, which are very, very full of caliche calcium carbonate. And that gets into, somehow, imparts their flavor into the wine. Now, different regions in Arizona have different terroirs, and that particular specific note is part of what makes a terroir different and distinguishable. You can taste the landscape in this wine. I was telling you a little bit about this in the Verde Valley without using that word. So for the Verde Valley, it's sea salt. For Wilcox, it's a sort of flinty minerality. Chino Valley, I haven't drunk enough yet to really determine what that note is yet, but there's something that's definitely different. Um, but more research needs to be done, so I need to drink more. Darn. <laughs> For Sonoida, it's tangerine, and I have no idea why. <laughs> but I pick up tangerine in both reds and whites in Sonoida. So I'll pick up, like, say, you know, you get it in the whites there, but also in the reds. Like, say, for example, if I get a Tempranillo blend from Caligans, which was grown on site, I get tangerine, which is not a characteristic that you normally associate with Tempranillo at all. Comments, questions, concerns, thoughts, travails, tribulations? I think that the Lindy characteristic is more on the palate than on the nose, which is interesting. Exactly. That's what I was, you know, no. sort of saying. But. And then the floral that's on the nose doesn't deliver on the palate, which isn't necessarily bad, but it's a little bit deceiving because the, the nose and the palate are exactly the same. Exactly. And that's the case I've noticed with a lot of wines. Some wines are exactly as they smell, other wines are not. Um, it's just, it varies. And one of those grapes that's especially deceiving is Viognier. Malvasia, on the other hand, what you see is what you get, or I should say what you smell is what you get on the palate. Um, so in those cases, those whites are diametrically opposed. Yes? Yes. <laughs> I do have some more. We know where some patties get Here, just, just, why don't you smuggle, I mean, snuggle the bottle? So. We're seeing why the seminary thing didn't work. Yeah. Well, in the Orthodox Church, priests can marry, so I'm allowed to flirt. It's just that most people don't flirt back. <laughs> this is why I'm single ladies, you know that. Well, there's probably lots of reasons behind that, but one of the other reasons is that I don't like sharing my wine cellar. <laughs> so next up, we're going to jump to the lighter body reds. Squeak. And we're going to encounter a wine made with that grape that just more or less made me into what I am today. Um, this is a Sangiovese-based blend. Sangiovese is that same grape that's in Chianti and Brunello de Montalcino, Vino Nobile de Montalcino. Let me try that sentence again. Vino Nobile de Montalcino. Um, and about 50 other styles of red from Italy. That's pretty popular there. 
Um, Sangiovese, by the way, comes from the Latin sanguis Jovis, or blood of Jupiter. Ah, that's good. So this is not a full Sangiovese. This is what's known as a super Tuscan style blend. Um, this style of blend has Sangiovese and a Bordeaux grape. In this case, Cabernet Sauvignon. 56% Sangiovese, 44% Cabernet Sauvignon. Again, coming from the hands of Michael Pierce. Um, so Super Tuscans in Arizona do so well that I jokingly refer to them as Super Tucsons. <laughs> so is, is Super Tuscan always the same blend of the same mm. combination, or is that just... It's the same sort of idea of blend, and I'll... Usually it's always Sangiovese. Sangiovese is the grape that's always in a Super Tuscan. And some Bordeaux grape. I have seen Super Tuscans that have uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, like this one. I have seen some that have Cabernet Franc. I have seen some that have Merlot. I have seen some that have had a combination of, say, this is the Mangus, for example, from uh, Stronghold, which is Sangiovese, Malbec, Petit Verdot, Merlot, and a little bit of Cab Sauv. Um, the key, or you can have wineries that play with the idea, like Passion, that does Sangiovese and Cabernet Sauvignon, but they also add in Grenache, which is not a grape in a Super Tuscan as well, at all. And Malvasia Bianco, which is often traditionally blended with Sangiovese, but never in a Super Tuscan. So Sangiovese, like I said, that's that grape that more or less started me out. It's what made me into being the man that you're stuck here listening to today. At least I assume you're actually enjoying it, not feeling stuck or trapped. Ha ha ha. So anyway, this is a wine that uh, really, the only other place you can get this wine other than Hidden Track Bottle Shop, if you really like it, is you've got to make the trek down to Wilcox. So this is what's known as a light to medium bodied red. Cody, can I just interject real quick? Can you can you touch on Super Tuscan and how it came from? Yes. So Super Tuscans as a style. How it originated was Bordeaux got very, very popular in the 1950s and 60s. It kind of eclipsed the traditional, very popular table reds that were coming from Italy. A bunch of winemakers got together and decided we don't like the situation. We don't like following the rules that have been put in place for us in Tuscany. We're going to build our own style of wine. And this is where the Futurama quote would come in, you know, with blackjack, the hookers. On second thought, forget about the hookers. Um, sorry, I watched too much Futurama growing up, too. Anyway, so what they did was to compete with Bordeaux, they used the base of Sangiovese and said, we'll do half Sangiovese as a nod to local character and heritage. Because we don't want to forget where we came from entirely. But we're going to blend in Bordeaux grapes and see what happens. And so you have this blend of the Cabernet Sauvignon, which originally is coming from Bordeaux, with that local grape, the Sangiovese. And because Cabernet Sauvignon does so well here, and Sangiovese does so well in Arizona as well, uh, the Super Tuscan as a style is a no-brainer to export to Arizona. Most wineries are doing one. Um, I can only think of about eight offhand that aren't doing one or never planning on doing one. Um, that's neither here nor there. 
So on the nose, there's a stereotypical characteristic that's smelled in all Wilcox and Gervaisi. And it's a very obscure nose, and the only reason I know it is because of the other thing that I do all the time, which is smoke a pipe. There is a distinct note of a particular style of pipe tobacco on this nose, known as a Cavendish. You also get lots of sort of cranberry, cherry characteristics, a little bit of plum. A little bit of cassis, too, is showing up from that Cabernet Sauvignon. Cassis is a really dark fruit. The beautiful part about Sangiovese, by the way, is that it pairs with anything you throw at it. Everything. Vegetarian, vegan, meat, whatever. It's a very versatile grape for your dinner table, which is one of the reasons why in Italy it's your most popular grape. It's actually one of the six most widely planted grapes in the world. Um, weirdly enough, number one is Grenache, which we don't really have any here today, but... That's a shame. <laughs> it is. And it's great. I've got some in this shot. Yet. You could drink some by tonight. So... So this is what I would call a medium-bodied red. The reason being is that there's very little tan in the structure. It's also had some time to age. It is a 2013. We're, we're going to be starting to get into the big tannins here soon. So this is a light, easy-going, average red. I, I say average because it goes with everything. I'm not disparaging the quality of it at all. This is a great wine. Michael Pierce is a great winemaker. Super Tuscans are a great style blend here. The way I always have personified Sangiovese is that it is your best friend, usually of the opposite gender, who you've never had any attraction to, but they're just there, they're closest, like almost siblings or cousins. But when things go badly in your life, like you break up with, say, Tanat or something, you call up Sangiovese and be like, Sangiovese Tanat dumped me, what do I do? And Sangiovese's like, okay, load in the Netflix, bring in the ice cream, I'm coming. <laughs> Don't yeah, exactly. So if, for those of you who have seen my blog and follow it at all, um, you've probably noticed that I like to personify the wines I'm drinking as people. Um, it's just something that I've done ever since I was a kid, started drinking wine at 15. Um, just, it's a weird, the weirdest form of synesthesia ever, and probably the most useless. <laughs> now, another rule about Sangiovese, uh, that was told to me by a psalm when I was living for, in Boston for two years, and it's a rule that I've always abided by, is if you have no idea what to get, and you're at a loss, always buy a Sangiovese because it will make everybody happy, even the white drinkers, because it's a very inoffensive red for those who aren't fans of red. 
Um, very light, not very tannic usually, but at the same time you can find super tannic ones. And his rule of thumb is if you see a blend that's over 45% Sangiovese, you should always buy it because it will always be good unless the bottle is corked. Um, now what that means is in about one in about 150, 200, 300 bottles, something goes wrong in the bottling process. And there's a little bacteria that occasionally lives on the cork, gets into the wine, turns the wine into sort of this moldy sock tasting vinegar type thing. Um, it doesn't happen very often. And one of the advantages to screw caps is that that never happens. But the disadvantage of screw caps is just not as cool to take off a screw cap as it is to pull out a cork. <laughs> this is true, it is easier then. Um, also, you know, my general rule of thumb is if I'm going camping, I will take a screw top. Um, if I'm not camping or if I know where my corkscrew is and know I have it packed, I will bring something that's with a cork. Or, um, this is another bonus, and this is brand new, Grand Canyon Winery actually just started putting three of their blends in a can. Shocking, I know, and it sounds horrifying, but I actually had one yesterday morning. Yes, morning. <laughs> to be fair, it was 10 o'clock, so it was lunchtime, as far as I'm concerned, while I was kayaking on Canyon Lake, or um, not Canyon Lake, Saguaro Lake. And it was the red blend, which was a GSM blend. We don't have a GSM blend here. We have just, just the S, which we'll get to shortly. What a GSM means is Grenache Syrah Mouvedre. It's a very common Rhone style blend. Um, but it was good. It tasted fine just out of the can, which is something that I immediately think that you're now established I've lost all credibility. <laughs> hey, someone has to drink it. No, um, not any in box form. Um, the only winery to do it in cans so far, other than Dos Cabezas with their rosé, is Grand Canyon Winery. Um, Kegged wines, a few wineries are doing just in restaurants. Um, Page Springs has done it, Stronghold has done it, uh, and Dos Cabezas has done it. Um, so if you go to some of the restaurants, um, the biggest one I know of, but this is also because that's where I'm at, um, in the Verde Valley is the Horn, and they do a couple of wines in keg form. Um, here in Phoenix, I know there's a couple restaurants that do it, but I don't know any of them off the top of my head, I'm sorry. Um, this is because I don't come down to the valley very often. They don't let me down off my mountain very often. Um, which is kind of a shame, but so it goes. Which is why last night I was visiting all the wineries in Scottsdale that I don't normally get to visit to. Including Eridus, which are... Actually, that's a perfect segue. Including Eridus, which is our next wine. So next up is a grape that you don't normally see very often in Arizona because it is a very difficult grape to grow in Arizona. And that's Zinfandel. Say again? Nope, it's not because it's too warm. Raise your hand if you want to take a stab at why Zinfandel doesn't grow too well in Arizona. Heat. It's not heat. Water. Mm -hmm. Lack of or too much? Too much. 
Too much water. Too much water. Too much water. Too much Exactly. So the great clusters for Zinfandel. That made a funny noise. Grow very close to each other. And so when it rains during the monsoon season, unless you're very much on top of these things, the water will seep into that cluster and it can't evaporate out of it because those grapes are too tight together. And so the grape clusters start to rot. So unless you have very, very small Zinfandel vineyards or you're very, very much on top of them, um, your entire crop of Zin might run away. Now the other thing about Zinfandel in Arizona that makes it very, very different than California, and you can already tell this if you have it in your glass, it's much lighter than your Zins coming from Lodi. Here in Arizona, Zinfandel is definitely lighter bodied than its contemporaries. And they said fencing poses would be useless to learn. <laughs> Which class? That's fine. This one? Okay. So Zinfandel as a grape has a very interesting history. Um, for a long time there was a lot of questions as to where Zinfandel was coming from. Um, whether it was some sort of, indi not indigenous grape, but some sort of hybrid that was created in California, or whether it was the same as Primitivo. Um, what happened is they did some genetic testing, and what they learned was that Zinfandel is the same grape as this grape that grows in Croatia that has two names. I will attempt to pronounce them. I will probably butcher them. So if anyone knows Croatian, please kindly correct me. Um, Tribadog and Havartvlu. Try saying that five times really fast. Oh, there's none left. Okay, that's womp womp. So, I'm gonna grab a snack here really quick while I can. So this is a lighter body than compared to, as you pointed out, this one's coming out of the Verde Valley, specifically having the lead. Lodi. And Lodi, too. Um, Lodi zins are black as sin, black as night. To me, I don't like Lodi zins. They remind me too much of my ex-fiance. Very, very blunt, overt, and not very friendly. Um, Arizona zins, on the other hand, are very much more similar to those coming from Italy. I haven't had any from Croatia yet, so I can't speak of that. One of these days I'll maybe make it out there. Here in Arizona they tend to be lighter bodied, a little bit softer flavor profile. It's not as much as getting punched in the face, but also most winemakers in Arizona have noticed this so far. Not many people here in Arizona are using immense amounts of oak. Oh, thank you. You find some wineries that are using some second or third year French oak or neutral French oak, neutral American oak. One of the few exceptions to that um, we're gonna be getting to here in a couple of minutes. Actually, two of the few exceptions that I'm aware of, which is neither here nor there. Um, so oak provides a lot of things in a wine. Um, it provides different flavor notes. It sometimes imparts more tannins. 
and it can sometimes even change the characteristics of the wine. I mean, a lot of you guys have probably had oak Chardonnay and unoaked Chardonnay. So there's that massive difference imparted by the oak, a lot of that vanilla notes or cedar notes if you're using American oak or the sort of um, walnut pecan note that's imparted by Hungarian oak, which is really quite interesting. I love Hungarian oak. More winemakers, in my opinion, need to use it. But again, that's my personal palate. So what you get on the nose of this in is this intense, almost like cranberry cherry note. A little bit of plum. And almost like dried cranberries and that, like those craisins. Um, which to me makes me immediately want to pair this one with Thanksgiving dinner. Um, which is not a traditional pairing for Zinn at all. Um, Zinn is traditionally paired with steaks or Italian food or like lasagna, that sort of thing. Um, because Zinn is usually so strong and robust that it will drown out that light play of flavors that are imparted during your Thanksgiving meal. So Eridus, down south in Wilcox, um, the current winemaker is Leah Shanker, who's a really great friend of mine. Uh, previous winemakers there have included James Callahan, um, who is the owner of Rune Winery and also the winemaker for Pillsbury. And Rob Hellman, who makes Sand Reckoner, um, who in my opinion is another one of the best winemakers in the state. Um, Eridus is a custom crush facility in Wilcox, and what that means is a lot of other wineries will go to Eridus and who don't have a facility for making their own wine and uh, say, hey, make my wine for me to these specifications because I don't have these facilities. Use this yeast, use, excuse me, this oak, age it for this long, this sort of thing because I don't have the place to make it. Can you do that for me? I've got the fruit right here in this bin. It's three tons worth. And then Leah or James or Rob, when they were there, when Leah's there now, say, sure, okay, we'll make it for you. So if you guys are interested in starting winemaking down in Wilcox, they're a great place to start. Um, the other place that I recommend for Custom Crush uh, would be, I think Tumbleweed might be doing it soon. I don't know. But also uh, Maynard's Collective up north, which is where you can find some of uh, Saculum Cellars wines at 48 Wineworks. In Clarkdale. Um, it's this collective of different winemakers that are under Maynard. Maynard has the space, he kind of rents it out to these winemakers to make their own wine, which is not the same as a custom crush operation. What he does is he provides a space for it, but it's the same general idea. It's like, here's the space to make your wine. Is it the same Maynard from Tool? This is the same Maynard from Tool. Um, his main winery up north is Caduceus. Um, try saying that name of that winery five times really fast. So Eridus has a tasting room actually here in Scottsdale, um, which is actually, I've been to less than the tasting room in Wilcox, because I get to Wilcox more than I get to Phoenix, which is very sad to say. But also normally when I'm passing through Phoenix, it's at midnight, on my way down to Wilcox for either working the tasting room for passion sellers down there, or alternately, for Crush. Courtney, I just want to add that um, Aridus uh, was wonderful in donating several of their wines. Sarah and I had the opportunity to go to Aridus, which neither of us had ever tasted, 
um, previously. Um, and so we had an opportunity to go a couple of days, uh, about a week ago, and try the wines, fell in love with, with many. They were generous to uh, donate um, several bottles. Um, so if you do go, it's great that we're seeing more and more um, tasting rooms here in Old Town. I know Passion is going to be opening one as well. Um, so please do visit them. Let them know that you are a student of wine and that you are came to, to see them um, after tasting your wine. But uh, Matt, who's the tasting room manager, is, is great there. It's a cool space um, and uh, just a really nice tasting experience. They've got some cards from Iridus right up here on the counter. Um, their address where they are in Scottsdale, and they've got an event, some flyer on the table there about an event there coming up in October. So. Which is a horizontal Viognier tasting. We tasted a Viognier um, from one of the vineyards that's not going to be represented there. Um, Viognier, as we've explored already, is a really great grape here in Arizona, so you, need, you should check over, check out that tasting. Um, but yeah, I, I really quite appreciate that Matt was kind enough to donate a couple of bottles here. Uh, for our use to drink today, and in my opinion, two of the best wines in the tasting room at that, um, the Zinfandel and the Syrah. Um, they also have a really great Grenache Rosé in the tasting room, so if you want to stop by there afterwards and get their Grenache Rosé, tell them Cody sent you. It's pretty awesome. And it's in a screw top too, so that means you don't have to worry about it if you've already had a lot of wine already. You don't have to worry about trying to get that corkscrew in. That should be a rule. I don't like that rule. <laughs> so what do you guys think of the Zen? I like the microwave wineries up in Long Island. I've had an earth, a Merlot from Earthquake that was quite lovely, actually. They're really great to say it's expensive. This, this rattles is good. It's much lighter. Than it's good. So next up we're getting into the Mortan Reds. And we're starting with the Aridus Syrah. Syrah is another grape that I'm quite fond of. If Syrah was a person, it would be a pinup model in my opinion. Lounging on a couch. Smoking something, what she's smoking and what she's reading there and her tattoos vary on the Syrah, but it's always the same template. And also delightfully curvaceous. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of implied by Pinnacle. So Syrah, as a grape, has a history. There's two theories to Syrah. The one that's the boring story is that it's indigenous to the Rome. The story that I like to tell about Syrah, in terms of its origins, again is tied into that same bloody period of history in the Middle Ages that the Crusades were. So the Crusades not only sacked Constantinople, um, they also played around a lot in the Levant, in Syria and Lebanon, which are, of course are coming into the news very much these days. Side note, there is, or at least was, before ISIS, a wine industry in Syria. There still is one in Lebanon, which we already touched upon. Now, my hope is that, and this is probably what's going to happen, um, some of the refugees coming from Syria were probably from the wine industry kicked out by ISIS. In fact, I have a friend um, who was a wine grower and or a grape grower and winemaker in Iraq 
who had to flee Isis right in the middle of harvest. So he had to leave everything on the vines, he had to leave all his equipment and just escape with his life. Um, what I really would like to see is some of those refugees from that wine program come here to Arizona because they've spent... Uh-oh. Sorry, I've had it before. Okay. Oops. Um, I really would like to see some of these refugees from Syria that are from the wine industry to come here to Arizona and share with us their knowledge of 3,000, 4,000 years of grape growing and winemaking in an environment that is, in terms of climate, almost identical to the regions that are growing in the south of Arizona. Um, I think that they would have a lot to share and teach us, but that's also my, only, my own opinion, uh, be that as it may. So the Crusaders came into Syria right around 1099, hung out after killing a lot of people, because that's what Crusaders did, sent some of the vines of some of the grapes back to the Rhone Valley, including Syrah. And the story goes that Syrah is very obviously a corruption of the old French word for Syria, for the Levant. Whether this is the case or not, whether it's indigenous or not, it's a great story. So on the nose of the Syrah, you get dark cherry, cassis, smoky characteristics. This really intense, almost sweet smoke that to me as a pipe smoker makes me think of a particular style of tobacco known as Latakea. There's also lots of allspice, sort of a black pepper. This wine, by the way, is gonna play really, really well with those sausages. Um, so I recommend taking a bite of the sausage, taking a bite of the wine. Yeah, I could definitely sense that. Hey, Sarah, how do you like it? How do you think, Scott? <laughs> Actually, she was saying she really didn't like this stuff. I was amazed myself. Sarah's middle name is Syrah. Seriously? Oh, okay. So Syrah is fun. It is one of, in my opinion, the best grapes in Arizona. It grows very well across three out of the four growing regions in Arizona. Grows well in Sonoyde, grows well in the Chiricahua. Well, actually in the Chiricahuas too, but also Wilcox. Uh, Lawrence Dunham has a pretty great Syrah. And theirs is unusual because theirs is one of the few wines that's aged on American oak. And the idea behind that was as an homage to the classic um, Australian Syrahs, or Shiraz. By the way, Shiraz and Syrah are the same grape, but here's where it Sort of gets confusing. Everywhere else in the world is called Syrah, except for in Australia or... South of the equator. South of the equator, partly. But I've also seen some Chilean wines that were made from this grape called Syrah. But you can also call any clone coming from an Australian vine, because there's specific clones of these grapes that are designed for specific climates, You can call a clone that is coming from an Australian Shiraz vine in Arizona a Shiraz. So this is why Pillsbury has the Guns and Kisses Shiraz as opposed to the Guns and Kisses Syrah. Because their clone of Syrah that they're using comes from Australia. So they can legally call it Shiraz. This is where wine law just gets 
crazy, and I just shrug my eyes and shrug my arms and go. Have glass. <laughs> yeah, have another glass and just go. Whatever. Fuck. <laughs> so, I'm done. Do we actually have actual laws in Arizona, or can they pretty much do whatever they want? Yes and no. In terms of aging laws, no. Um, the latest bill that passed that actually allowed wineries to also sell beer also forces a winery in order to get the proper license to have either five acres under cultivation or a production facility. And 95% of their fruit must be coming from Arizona, coming up soon. That starts hitting in 2017. In order to call themselves Arizona. In order to call themselves an Arizona winery, they need to follow those rules. Now that being said, unlike parts of Europe or even Washington State or California, which have specific rules for winemaking and wine aging, um, we don't have those yet. Um, most of those rules are associated with what are known as AVAs or American Viticultural Regions. The only place like that in Arizona so far is Sonoida. But that being said, there's no other rules to being to having a wine in the Sonoida AVA, other than if you're going to say it's from the Sonoida AVA, it needs to be 95% from that AVA in your wine. So really excellent example of a wine from there um, that fits this criteria. Um, is the Amanda Cabernet Sauvignon coming from hops and vines? 95% of that fruit in that Cabernet Sauvignon was coming from their estate vineyard and from Callaghan's vineyard the other 5% was coming from Wilcox, but because it was 95% Sonoida, they can say this is Sonoida AVA. There are other rules countrywide in terms of wine. Um, I don't have a wine that really fits that criteria, so we're going to pretend that I'm holding up a bottle of something here um, that fits. Let's say that the Willow White Saval, you can call it a Saval Blanc, if it was 75% of that grape. So let's say that this was 75% Sauvau Blanc, 25, or um, the rest of it Malvasia Bianca, for example. You could call it Sauvau Blanc because it's mostly Sauvau Blanc. Less than that, you have to give it a blend name, like the Pandora. That's 50% Pinot Gris. You can't call it a Pinot Gris. Now, in terms of vintages, a wine has to be 95% of that particular vintage to be called that vintage. So, a great example of this um, that we don't have here would be the Spectre, which I mentioned before under Super Tuscans, from... Uh, Is that just in Arizona, 95%? No, it's, I think, countrywide, but I could be wrong. Maybe. I might be wrong. But as far as I'm aware, um, it's definitely in Arizona. So, the Spectre Super Tuscan and Passion is largely 2010 fruit, um, the Sangiovese and the Cabernet Sauvignon, but 10% of that fruit is coming from 2013 and 2000, 2013 vintage, which would be the Grenache Malvasia. So we can't say that this is a 2010 Spectre because it's not all 2010 fruit. It's 90% versus 95%, so it's just over that cutoff. Wine law is interesting, and by and large, it's good stuff to know, but you really, it really only truly will affect you if you're actually...
actually making your own one. You need to find these rules. Because labeling laws can be tricky, and I don't know that much about them. Um, Thomas L. Johnson actually has a great article on that in the latest issue of Arizona Wine. Page 58. Page Take Eridus, for example. You have a wine made at Eridus. It will say probably on the site, produced by Eridus Wine Company, their address. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that fruit was not Arizona. Let's say, um, I think Pillsbury's old labels had that, for example. And I know the first labels from Passion had that, because they were produced at Page Spring Cellars. So it might say, produced at Page Spring Cellars, da 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 da, and the address. But that is a good thing to watch out for. Another good thing to watch out for on your label is for sale in Arizona only. Because this is a nice way that some wineries can get around this idea of not saying from Arizona, but having the word Arizona on the label. So people think, oh, for sale in Arizona only, it's Arizona fruit. Um, but it's not all Arizona fruit sometimes. Sometimes. Other times, again, they're trying to market it as... This is something you can only get here to the vacationers. So again, there, there is some leeway on either side, and it can get really complicated, and in some cases, bitter. Uh, feuds have erupted. Um, and I won't say more on that, because... Oh, come on. So this is where we want to know some of the TMZ information about the Arizona wine making industry. There are feuds that are between some of the winemakers down south over labeling. I will not say more than that because I don't want to find myself in those feuds. I have it from reliable sources. So next up we're going to go with a classic style that's very well known and famous throughout the world, the Bordeaux blend. This is an Arizona take on it. This is a 2011 Lozen. From Arizona Stronghold. Now this wine, I'm cheating because it tells me on the back what's in it, which is great. 35% Merlot, 32% Cabernet Franc, 25% Cabernet Sauvignon, 8% Petit Verdot. So this has four out of the six Bordeaux grapes. So the classic six Bordeaux grapes are Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec, and Carmenera. Carmenera I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, which is being grown only in one site in Arizona so far. Malbec is becoming more and more popular in Arizona, and the reason being is because in terms of climate, the area most similar to Argentina in the world for wine growing is Wilcox, which is why Deep Sky Vineyards, when they have their tasting room, will be pouring an Argentinian Malbec from their vineyard in Argentina next to one grown at their vineyard 
and Wilcox. So that'll be fun to compare the two side by side. I'm really looking forward to that. So Clara was very kind to provide us with this bottle from her stash today. Um, Belozin is one of my two favorite Bordeaux blends. The other is the Gallia, which is coming from Saculum Cellars, and you can actually find the Gallia down below at Hidden Track Bottle Shop. So Bordeaux is a blend, or one of those that is most famous in antiquity. This is a little light compared to most Bordeaux blends in terms of color. But what you get on this is definitely a smoky characteristic imparted by the oak. Sorry. Blueberries are another big thing. So I get a lot of blueberry, I get a lot of mulberry, I get a lot of cherry, plum, cassis, vanilla. So that vanilla nose on this wine tells me this wine has been aging in French oak. Mm -hmm. What else is everyone getting in this wine on the nose? Don't everybody speak up at once. I don't want to be wrong. There, spoiler alert, there are really no wrong answers. Everyone has a different nose, everyone has a different palate. Everyone has different names for things. I've had sommeliers laugh at me when I say, oh, there's Cavendish in this. You know, like, it's tobacco, and I'm just like, there's about 50 different kinds of different tobaccos used, so which one is it? And then they look at me with this very angry look. I got smoked that time, too. Yep. Sort of a smoky vanilla flavor that's imparted by the oak. Or on the There's also a fair bit of tannins. Tannins in wine is what provides that really sort of bone dry character that sort of bites at the top. So was it normally black berries? First red wine that we had, which I don't remember what it was, but the emotiva. So that one when I tasted it was like like mean it like sucked every bit of like moisture to me off my tongue. So that has more tannins than one that doesn't do that? Is sort that of, yes. I mean I get I get to confuse. I know like the drier the wine, but this one was like like that's how I felt. On the beginning of the palate or on the end of the palate? On the end. Okay. That, that would be Versus tannins. like the second one or this one, which I say this one is drier than the last one we had, mm -hmm. but not as dry as the first one. But is that tannins? That, so you go... Largely tannins. Okay. Now the reason why this has less tannins than number one, even though being from more tannic grapes, is that this is an older wine. This has had time to age, and those tannins have had time to break away. So this Lozen is from 2011. The Sangiovese blend, the Super Tuscan, was from 2013. So, uh, sorry, your name again? Stephanie has pointed out is that in a lot of ways, this wine is less dry than the Emotiva, which was the Sangiovese Super Tuscan. So the reason for that is, even though this is coming from more tannic grapes, these Bordeaux grapes impart a lot of tannins, and I'll tell you how you get that in a moment. Um, even though this is supposed to be less tannic grapes, it's because this is much younger. So this is a great demonstration of aging wine. Uh, the longer you age a wine... You can get a little confused too with acid too on it. People will often confuse acid with tannins if they don't know the difference on that as well. It's just a different reaction in your 
mouth in? Is it going to be that chalky, gritty uh, feeling film on your mouth? The acid is going to be more of a skinny burn, but not burn. Um, yeah. The other thing I've noticed that's a good ballpark way to distinguish cannons in a city is, am I getting the sensation at the front of the palate or at the back of the palate when I swallow? Acidity is more towards the front for me, and for other people it's probably very different. Tannins are more for the rear of the palate for me. Exactly. The tannins have largely worn away through time. The acidity, though, has remained. And there are two ways to determine how well a wine will age. Way one is tannins, way two is acidity. Third way, which really only applies in one case for reds, which is ports, is sweetness and residual sugar. So a wine that's more tannic will age longer than a wine that has less tannins. A wine that has more acidity will age longer than a wine that has less acidity. Which is why, in terms of whites, very few whites will age as well as reds. The exceptions are those with a very high acidity, like a Vernacchio di Singhiamani, or what I think Arizona Malvasia will do. Or if you have a sweeter red, sorry, sweeter white, like say a Sauternes, which is that style of Sauvignon Blanc from Bordeaux with noble rot. You had a question? What about Rieslings? Rieslings? Because with Rieslings, you have that wonderful double-edged sword. It's either super acidic in Germany, or it's super sweet. So either way, you get a German Riesling off the shelf, you're almost guaranteed to be able to age it. Okay. That's the beautiful thing about German Riesling is that they're all ageable because they're either high acidity or high sweetness. Now let me ask you another question. Okay. You said this is an 11? Mm-hmm. Most Bordeaux blends that I've ever run across generally can age for decades. Yes. So how long can this age for? The Lozen, I would say you could easily age this for 10, 15, 20 years. No problem. Okay. No one is getting my last box. <laughs> so, so what, what it boils down to then is when you're comparing Bordeaux blends, traditional or just if you're going to call it a Bordeaux blend, then you have to take into consideration how it was made, where it was made, for its drinkability and approachability. Exactly. Not many people get that. Well, you better tell them. <laughs> so the thing to keep in mind about Bordeaux, guys, is that they can be very different across the board. Um, classic Bordeaux in France can age for, I've heard stories of vertical tastings, of 50 or 60 year old Bordeaux. Um, in California, sometimes it's the same way, sometimes not. What you have to determine is winemaker's choice, what the winemaker is gearing for, what the winemaker is doing with his wines. Some want a wine that you can drink now. Some want a wine that you can drink later, much later. Um, others want a wine that, you know, you could drink it now if you want to decant it for a few hours, or you can drink it... 50 years from now if you really want to, or you can drink it 10 years from now or five years from now. It really matters in what the winemaker is doing. So are um, they, excuse me, so are winemakers actually thinking like that? Like, I want to make a wine that I bottle it and they can open it two weeks later or two years later or 20 years, I mean, are they actually thinking yes. that 
when they're harvesting their grapes and starting to go through the whole winemaking process? Yes, they are. Um, there are certain yeasts you can use. There are certain styles of oak if you want oak or steel. Rule of thumb is that steel-aged wines are generally to be drunk much more sooner, much sooner. My grammar is clearly gone. Much more sooner, yes. More soonest. More soonest than, say, those that are aged in oak. So case in point, the Lozen, we know it's oaked. You can taste it in the wine. This is a wine that's designed to age. And I've also heard this directly from Glomsky and Stronghold staff. Yes, we made the Lozen designed as a wine that you could sit on for 10 plus years, no problem, and drink it when you get around to it for a special occasion. Versus their Dalla Cab, which is a Bordeaux grape, you know, it's designed to be drunk much sooner. Okay, you drink this within five years. It'll last past then, but it's gonna peak at this point. So that being said, I haven't had the Lozen before. I know, it's shocked you guys. Dallas! <laughs> did I, I poured you guys some, right? Uh, well, yeah, no. Okay, good. I was gonna say, did I miss How you How much is that bottle? It's pricey. Um, um, I'm a wine member, so I'm gonna say it's in the 30. 30. Um, the bottle I got was 40. Okay. You paid too much. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I <laughs> But also, I got it at a festival and they didn't have the system set up for doing industry oh, discounts. Okay. So it's just like, I made $40 in tips today. Oh, they have the lows in here. I'm going to buy this and sit on it for 10 years and then review it then. So, can I say one more thing? No, you can't. You're not allowed. I'm kidding. Okay, Go ahead. So, tasting at least like five wines a week, yeah, or more, really five, only five. if that's a $30 bottle of a Bordeaux blend style, that's a pretty nice little wine, actually. I'm pretty impressed yeah, with that. 40 and bottle, yeah, 40 bucks a bottle, too, but 30 is really starting to pique my interest, because that's one of our problems 30, as, 30 as nice. proprietors for a wine shop. We want to support Arizona, Arizona wines that are true to terroir, true to varietal. Uh, at an entry level price point that's not going to scare you away. $40, $50 for something that you've never tried before. Great example, that would be the Kindred. So, but this at like 30 bucks, I, I can definitely sell this and people are going to be happy with it. So, nice wine. Yeah, no. Thanks, Carla. So, like 30 to 40. So, Cody has in his mind he wants to make a wine that's good in two weeks or two mm -hmm. years or 20 years. Being cynical, they obviously want to make money too. Yeah. So, will they make wines and go, you know, we'll make this one with this stuff because we can sell it now at this price? These that are made, we're not going to sell it in 10 years, we can sell it at $10. Or the library wines. Uh, <laughs> library wines are often the shop. No. Some, some do that, but by and large, they do kind of two approaches. They'll do wines that are, okay, we can do these now, or we can do these later. And some, case in point, a great example is Jason the Monaco of Passion. He's doing, okay. I love Passion. That's why I met you originally with Scott. So what Jason is doing is he has some that he wants to release, like, say, January, February, March. And then he also says some that he makes and prepares a certain way for later for his reserve layer. So what's the norm, and I think you have a norm, but you have grapes, you plant them. From planting 
to harvest to one? What's the norm? Is it like a year or two years or three so, years? So we've got a great question over here from Stephanie. Great question, thank you. How long will it take kind of to get from planting a vine to a bottle? On average, you can start harvesting your grapes three years after you've planted. If obviously, the longer you wait, the more it gets more rooted in the soil, the healthier the vine is going to be. Some people, Pillsbury didn't pick his vines until they had been eight years in the ground, for example. So you've got, okay, three years, your first harvest. Let's say you've harvested Malvasia Bianca, a white. Okay, you ferment that, you age it in barrel, you can release that if you really wanted to in March of the next year. Um, so whites are the quickest to make, to age, to get into the tasting room. Bless you. Thank you. It's very loud in there, I apologize. <laughs> With Grenache, say a lighter bodied red, okay, let's say you pick it at three years. First year you plant them, the second year you take off all of the clusters that form just to get it more rooted in the soil. Third year is when your first harvest is, generally. Does anybody have a, a, a grapefruit or lime or any trees? It's, it, it's the same thing that you're not going to get fruit really that they need or, or have until more years, four years. Uh, it's the roots have to get established and find a water table or, or established and find a water table. No, it's okay. That, that actually is a good comparison. Now, say with a Grenache, you want to age that a little longer. Um, or say you're doing something in neutral oak or steel, again, a red, and just trying to get it out there, something that's easy, fresh, drinkable. Um, general rule of thumb is you age that in barrel for about a year after you've harvested. So you release that a year down the line, a full year. Now, say you've got a tannic red, like a great example of this. Um, it's going to be released in the tasting room for Salvatore Vineyards, which is my parent winery's premium label that's going to be open in Scottsdale. It's called the Lacrimi di Rosata, which is a red blend for Tears of Laughter is the name in Italian, because Jason is focused on an Italian palate. He aged everything in barrel for about two years and then is releasing it, bottled it now, he's gonna be releasing it this year, but it's still gonna be very tannic. So it's gonna be a bottle that you wanna age. Now, that being said, there are wineries in Italy that make a grape, make a wine out of Nebbiolo. Arizona Nebbiolo is weird compared to Italian Nebbiolo. It's kind of tangential, we won't get into it. If you wanna know, I'll tell you later when we're done. Um, some wineries in Barolo age their wines in barrel for 10 years. And then they let it sit in bottle for as long as another five years afterwards. In a bottle. And then they'll release it into the stores. So Arizona's equivalent to tannins, imparted by Barolo and Nebbiolo, is Tanat. Tanat originally comes from the Madeiran AOC of France, just north of Basque Country. And there it's often so tannic that it has to be blended with Merlot. If you want something that can be released younger, others, you let it sit in barrel and age for a while. This has had some time to breathe, but there's still gonna be a lot of tannins. In my opinion, the Cabra Tanat from DA Ranch is one of my top 
five favorite Arizona wines right now in any store, period. So I am really freaking excited that you guys are gonna get to taste one of my favorites. <laughs> so thank you, Craig, for having this. Yes. So as you can see, when I pour this, you can see how dark it is. Black as night. <laughs> now, I, this was one of the, uh, I did review this wine on my blog, as well as for the noise. The winemaker for this was Eric Lomsky, Day Ranch. Um, they're now being made, like I said, by Joe Bouchard. Um, I love Tanat. Tanat is apparently, according to my fellow industry people, the grape that I would be if I was a grape. Because I can be very, very dark. I can yeah. be very, very difficult to comprehend and kind of grok or understand or deal with. Um, but at the same time, once you get to know it, you love it. It's great. You want to hang out with it all the time. And so as a woman, how would you have described this on your blog? Well, I described this as me. Oh, you described it as you? Yeah. All right. I went with the... So with the kilt or without the kilt? Uh, one of the reasons that I got for me being Tanat is that kilts have tannins. Got it. Well, it's a man in a skirt, so that's <laughs> kind of on the spectrum of Tanat. So anyway... Oh good, there's like three drops left. I'll give myself a little bit more. So what we've got on the nose, you get heavy oak, you get that sea salt too. Remember what I was telling you earlier? How all these Verde Valley wines will pick up just that little bit of sea salt from that ancient sea, that sea breeze, it's there in this wine. I can already tell just by the nose that this is gonna have a lot of tannins. This will go great with that chocolate, actually. Dark, brooding. When you swallow it, along with those dark fruits, your tongue is just like sucked dry. This is a wine that will easily, easily age for 10 plus years. I have a bottle of this in my cellar that's earmarked to be only opened 10 years from now. Or unless, you know, the apocalypse happens and then I don't have to worry about aging anything more. Then, in which case, I'll just drink it all. I'll have a party at my wine cellar and you all can come up to Jerome and drink with me. Now, Tanat, like I was saying, originally comes from the Madeira and AOC of France. It's also the national grape of Uruguay. And now what I've noticed about Uruguayan Tanats is that they're much more easily approachable to the beginner. They're not as tannic. They tend to be more like Arizona Syrah, like the Syrah we had earlier, rather than this dark, brooding, monolithic, exciting, exuberant, but brooding awesomeness, for lack of a better word. It's an official wine term. Look it up. Um, it tends to be much more approachable for the layman. Uruguayan Tanats, but I don't like them as much as I like Tanat from Arizona, Tanat from France. In my opinion, Tanat is going to be the Nebbiolo of Arizona. Now, going back to what I said earlier about Nebbiolo in Arizona, Nebbiolo in Arizona tends to be almost pale and ghostly. 
It doesn't have that same color that Nebbiolo in Italy has. It's much lighter. Yes, it still has some of those tannins, but you're stuck with a wine that's almost as light as a rosé, but still packs a tannic punch, which is weird for a lot of people. A lot of people don't really get that or understand that or want to drink that. So what most people are doing are actually just straight up making a rosé from it. There is a rosé from Sierra Bonita Winery. And, well, their tasting room is in Tucson, but they're growing out of Wilcox. That is only 2% Tanat and is as dark as that Super Tuscan. So Tanat can provide a lot of color to things if you really want it to. Now on the palate of this wine, along with those heavy tannins, I'm getting a heavy dose of blackberry, black cherry, plum, sort of a cedar vanilla, that sea salt again, as well as a lot of herbs like tarragon, oregano. Um, in terms of food pairing, I would pair this with a steak, I would pair this with goat. I want something big with this. The best pairing for this Tanat is, as you correctly pointed out, more Tanat. Yes. I would totally have a bottle of this for dinner. So if you want a good tannic red for a good price, 27 is a really great price point. Less 15%. So Carla has brought up an interesting point about tasting room etiquette. Um, as someone who works in a tasting room, you know, what do I like to see, what, do, what don't I like to see? Um, rule of thumb, first of all, is of course, more or less act as you would in a restaurant. You're a guest, don't be a dick. <laughs> um, <laughs> Depends on if you're sarcastic or not. Sarcastic assholes I get along great with because being one a little bit myself, it's like, okay, okay, I can, you're going to give it to me rough? I'll give it to you rough. Then we'll have this great bike-playing camaraderie going. It's us against the world. Um, one of the things that I've heard horrifying stories about um, is that some people can be very overbearing and over-exuberant and overly flirtatious with the tasting room staff. Um, we're here selling wine. We're not really interested in what position you want it in. Um, Phil from Burning Tree tells me this great story. Um, formerly Burning Tree, now he's working at the Southwest Wine Center. About this woman who came on to him five seconds into the tasting and he said, we have a, we have a side A and, a, and a, a part A for offering and a part B. And she replies immediately, I only take it in part B. And it's just like, hey, I didn't mean to know that. That's your thing. Don't really care. I'm here to tell you about wine. I'm not here to be flirted with. That being said, some of us do like to be flirted with. So if you're in and I'm in, go ahead and flirt with me. I don't mind. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. It's just something that comes up. Basically, don't be a dick. 
Don't come on to your wine person and tip like you would be at a restaurant. Um, these people are sharing their knowledge and wisdom and their life with you. You know, some of these guys, not just myself, but some of these guys and gals, they're really into wine. Some of them actually helped make the wine. They appreciate sharing that knowledge with you. Um, it's a tradition in Arizona to tip your sommelier, or the person that's pouring you the wine. Um, you can either tip based on the tasting price, but I've also seen some people take tip on the total bill. Like say someone buys a tasting and three bottles. You know, some people will tip on just the tasting and give like a, oh, you were great, I'm gonna actually tip you the full price of the tasting. Other people will be like, I'm gonna tip on the total part of the bill. So there really isn't an established tradition for that, but the tradition is that you do tip something. Can you um, say in any tasting room, you, you tip? I would say in any tasting room. What about a tasting room, you just go in, you pay for just a tasting, as opposed to a tasting room where you can go in and have a, order a glass of wine or, or bottle and they serve you? Um, I don't know any that just do just the tasting and don't sell any bottles offhand, though. If you don't like their service, then obviously you can make that choice of not tipping based on whether they were a dick to you or not, which has happened in some cases I've seen. <laughs> um, I, I guess I, I, I fear I don't really understand your question. I'll just say, like, in comparison, if you go to wineries in, Arizona, in California, you walk in, you typically can't order, uh, in a lot of the tasting rooms, you don't order glasses. You go in there, like flight and or you flight order, uh, yeah, you pay 20 bucks for a, for a tasting. Generally, they shouldn't tip on that. It's, they're not providing a service, they're just providing yeah. a job where they're trying to sell you their wine, basically. Well, that's interesting you, because... If you go into a tasting room and you actually sit down and they're serving you a glass of wine, then I, I would totally agree with you, tip on that. Well, here's the thing about, I've noticed, is that in Arizona, it's become a tradition to tip I've, since the beginning, from what I've been talking to. But in California, you're right, that tradition is not to tip. So it really seems to vary from place to place. Um, what I've noticed here also, just visiting tasting rooms in Arizona versus the few I've visited elsewhere, is that people are friendlier in Arizona tasting rooms. They're more approachable. They're more willing to share their knowledge. They're not just there to sell you stuff. They're there to provide knowledge. Now, is that to get tips or because they get tips? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I am above... I'm not too far above that, let me rephrase. I like to provide information on what I've learned and what I know with people, so that way they're appreciant. Appreciant, wow. So that way they learn to appreciate wine the same way I do. I like people to learn about wine. But... No, there's an app Cody. Yes. Now, what if we go into a wine shop and we give you advice? Will you tell me? I do. <laughs> See, the old days of that, they didn't charge the tasters. You would just go in because they wanted you to drink their wine. They were trying to come out. But now it's changed now, oh, from what I've heard. Oh, huge. I mean, now wine tasting app is a business. When I was a kid growing up, they wanted you to come up. Yeah. Come from San Francisco, come from Sacramento, come drink our wine, tell everybody about it. That's what it was like when I was a kid. Now it's. You can watch the movie Mario mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, phenomenal movie. I, don't, don't way yeah. <laughs> that's just totally yeah but that just goes to show how things have changed in Napa versus now so before we close 
No, more than 60s and 70s. Okay, so, see, I think that's, that has a big link because there's a lot of so before we close, I want to ask if you guys have any questions or comments or concerns, anything that you particularly want to know about the Arizona industry. So what is your favorite, if you can tell us, or okay. just personal opinion, what's your favorite? Because I've had a lot of Arizona wines. I think Arizona wines are great. I've had passion sellers. Seller 433. I've been to Sonoida and had a lot of those. Do you have a favorite? I have Five favorite wineries in Arizona. This is my top five list. So, Verde Valley, DA Ranch, which we've got here. Um, they're doing innovative things. They're really focused on one specific vineyard. All of their wines are 100% from one vineyard. When you drink that, you're not getting any Wilcox fruit blended in. You're getting that pure expression of that Verde Valley Tawar. Plus, they're going to Blanc, which is unique. They're going to Nantes, which of course is my favorite. Um, so Dia Ranch is a vineyard and winery? Vineyard and winery. Um, you can arrange to do a tasting at their place. But you can also buy their bottles scattered around at a few different places. And winemakers have been jumping around. Eric was doing some. Eric was doing some, but now they're contracted with uh, Chateau Tumbleweed um, to make their wines. Very, very small production, like less than 200 cases of everything. Yeah, very small. Their vineyard total acreage is... Seven. Yeah. But they have their own facilities. I mean, when Eric's making the wine, he wasn't using his no, he was using his own facility, which was another example of custom crush. Eric does or did a lot of that. He doesn't do so much of that anymore. Um, also in the Verde Valley, um, Chateau Tumbleweed, speaking of. I have not had a bad wine from Chateau Tumbleweed, period. Everything that they touch is gold. Um, moving down to Sonoida and Wilcox, we've got Flying Leap. Mark Barras and the Flying Leap Gang are doing some awesome things, and I love that they are upfront to me about, this is where our grape is going, this is what we did with it, this is what we made it. Mark Barris is the closest person in terms of personality to me in the Arizona industry. So if you're like me, you're gonna like hanging out with Mark from Flying Leap. He's very exuberant, very, very much believes in what he's doing, is very honest and upfront and forthright about what he does. Number five, Bodega Pierce Seculum Cellars, which also appeared here today. Bodega Pierce and Seculum Cellars. I'm counting them mostly with Wilcox because that's where their fruit is all coming from mostly. Um, also, he's in charge of the winemaking school at Yavapai. So I'm, and he's a great winemaker, so I'm really interested in seeing how what he does distills down into the next generation of winemakers in Arizona. So he's got a big stake, so to speak. And he's a good steak. I like his wines. I'm really pleased that he's one of the people that's teaching. Uh, number five. Wait, what's, what's the difference between Cyclone Cellars and Bodega Pierce? Um, the difference is price point and kind of the style. So it's the same people just running two different lines. Yes. So the way um, Michael Pierce kind of told me is that Bodega Pierce is kind of the everyday line. You drink this every day. Seculum Cellars, that line, is kind of the original focus was to change with the seasons. This was a seasonal line. You drink this as the seasons turn for special occasions. These are the ones that you bring out for like family dinners, for dates, for special occasions, for the special occasion being that you have a bottle of the Sacred Cellars Viognier. Um, 
So that was kind of the idea behind those two labels. And I did a podcast with him a long while back. And this will eventually be a podcast too. It probably won't happen and be uploaded until after I get back from Turkey, but it will eventually be up on my blog. Um, so is everyone okay with this being online? I'm not hearing any no's. Okay. Um, number five, I've got to go old school classic with this. Calligan. Calligan has been growing wines in Arizona longer than almost anybody else at this point. The only winery that's older is Sonoida Vineyards, but, uh, and uh, Village of Elgin. Um, but other than Gary at um, Village of Elgin, um, Kent Calligan has been making longer wine here in Arizona longer than anyone else. So he's got more experiences. He knows how to make his wines express that landscape. He also is one of the other winemakers that is doing a really great Tanat. So again, I'm always biased towards Tanat. Actually, I just realized that all three out of the five wineries I mentioned are producing Tanats. That may be coloring my bias a little bit. It's your opinion, so you're allowed. This is true. <laughs> this, this is true. The question was, what is my opinion? Um, Extra double bonus. Um, uh, I really like Dos Cabezas. Um, I also really am quite fond of Zarpara. Oh God, why did I, I always forget him. So this is actually the true bonus number six. Um, and I always forget about him for some weird reason because he is very reclusive, very shy. Um, he's also very humble, one of the humblest winemakers I've ever met. Rob Hamelman from San Reckoner. Produce, has produced the greatest Malvasia Bianca ever. Twice. 2010 and 2013. So if you ever see anything from San Reckoner, grab it. And sometimes you're lucky enough to see his wine at AJ's. But if you're ever down in, Wil in Wilcox, make it a point to try and arrange an appointment to taste from him directly because you will not be disappointed. What's his name? Rob Hamelman. You can always special order and bring it to check. You can also... Anything distributed in Arizona or produced in Arizona and the winery is willing to self-distribute, we can get our hands on. So if you guys want a special order or anything, you want us to go and find it and get it here, a central location, we will do that for you. So San Record is definitely one of those wineries. Do we have to tip for that? No, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Your tip is <laughs> So Rob Howellman is also the only winemaker in Arizona growing one of my other favorite grapes, which is Sagrantino. Sagrantino is almost like the Italian version of Tanat. Um, the difference is that it's, the femi it's more feminine in my palate than Tanat is. So if I was Tanat, it would be the female version of me, which I have not met yet, sadly. Wearing a skirt. <laughs> Probably wearing a skirt. Or she'd be wearing trousers. Hopefully, hopefully not with a beard. Yeah, that would be nice. That would be especially nice if she didn't have a beard, either that. So anyway, that's my Thank list you. of six. Other questions? Comments, concerns, thoughts? Beliefs? Newest winery in Arizona. Newest winery in Arizona, oh God. Um, Rune is pretty new. Um, Zarpara is older than Rune. I think newest one with a tasting room that I'm aware of would be Rune. Rune, James Callahan. Is that another... a tasting room? Well, it sounds 
Yeah. It's a tasting canopy. Yeah. He produces, in my opinion, what is the best Syrah in Arizona, the wild Syrah. Yeah. And here's what Kent, or I'm sorry, this is what James does, and he's a good buddy of mine. He's also one of my favorite wineries. And he's um, got a great tasting space. Yes, he is also the most eligible bachelor in the Arizona wine industry other than me. So ladies, if you don't want to date me, date him. He if you prefer a man who's not masculine enough to wear a kilt, go with James. <laughs> Kidding, James. Love you, James. Um, he produces, like I was saying, the best Syrah in Arizona. It's called the Wild Syrah. And what he does differently that no one else in Arizona is doing is that he does wild fermentations. So he will take the Viognier and Malvasia that is growing, the yeast that's growing on those natively, and use that to inoculate his Syrah. So it's really, truly expressing the terroir of the landscape. It's one of my favorite wines in Arizona. Um, this, his tasting canopy is in Sonoida. So I say canopy because he actually tastes it under a canopy. Your question. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's one tasting room so far, and they're actually the other winery that's wine region that's been open the longest. Granite Creek Vineyards is the only tasting room so far in Chino. How representative is it of the Chino Valley? Poor, poorly representative, because most of their wines actually in that tasting room are coming from organic vineyards in California, because they are Arizona's only all-organic winery, so they can't buy other grapes from Arizona because no one else is certified organic. So they have one or two wines that are 100% estate fruit like their cabs. Yeah. But the others are kind of blended of local cab, local stuff from their vineyards. So in other words, Chino earlier tasted really good Chino terroir. Yeah. You, now Del Rio Springs just bought and got their tasting room approved. Okay. So by the end of, I think, the year, by December, they will have a tasting room in downtown Chino Valley. I can't remember off the top of my head where it is. Okay. So when that's open, you definitely need to check out there for yeah. really true Chino Valley terroir. Yeah, I have a backup question. Okay. In your opinion, from Arizona... Who does the best Tempranillo? Best Tempranillo in Arizona, hands down, Todd Bostock. This is not my own, he's from Dos Cabezas. Okay. This is also not my own opinion, too. Uh, it's my opinion, but it's been secondly backed up by Alexei Karic, who's, weirdly enough, I met him in the tasting room. He's the, he is a winemaker in California who also works for the canonical Association Assembly of Orthodox Bishops in the U.S. Okay. So when he came into the tasting room and saw my lapel pin on my blazer that had St. Paisis, he was like, wait, you're Orthodox? And you're in wine? So immediately became best friends. But he's also, he drinks a lot of Arizona wines wherever he goes and drinks a lot of California wines. And he's tasted a lot of Arizona Tempranillos. And he said when we poured him the Aguilon, um, basically this was hanging out with him after work one day, that that was the best Tempranillo he's had in the U.S., period. So, yeah, he is why number one. Why doesn't more Tempranillo be growing in the Southwest? It's starting to become more popular. Um, case in point, Passion just got a ton and a half of Tempranillo from Alfreda from Juan Alba's Vineyard. So we're going to be making a Tempranillo. Okay. Um, Chateau Tomboy does a Tempranillo and a Tempranillo blend. Um, part of the reason, I think, is because, and this is my own sort of wild mass guessing theory, Right. It's because one of the grand godfathers of Arizona wine, Eric Kolomsky, hates Tempranillo. He refuses to make it, refuses to grow it, even though it grows out here well. So he doesn't make one. A lot of people following in his footsteps will not even hear it as a suggestion. I think people should open their own minds and just do what works best for the area. Yeah. 
not what somebody thinks works best. Yeah. And Tempranillo works great here. I've been consistently happy with it. It's on my list of top five reds for Arizona. Okay. Um, but there are more people coming up with it. So just keep your eyes peeled. DA Ranch, by the way, just planted Tempranillo. They're expecting their first harvest two years from now. The first thing they're going to be making with it, I've been told from Eden at DA Ranch, is that it's going to be a Tempranillo Rosé, which will be the first Tempranillo Rosé, as far as I'm aware, from Arizona. So it's coming. We have a bag of mine over here. Okay. If you want to look through it and find one that you want to open, okay. we're welcome to pour it. That's coming from our house. Okay. It's right on right. Okay. So who wants a bonus pour? Bonus pour of something. Okay. So we're gonna look in the bag that Carlos brought. I don't know. Let's find out. Okay. So I'm gonna put this up for a vote for you guys. So we have. Yes to vote. Let's do There's four of them. So, if you want a white, we have from Flying Leap, The Escape, which is Viennier Marcelon. Or Marcelon, rather. Well, Carla and Scott, but it's Carla. Smart man, Scott. Marcelon, which is a red, from Jerome Winery, which is seller 433. We have a 2007 Rancho Maria Cab from Sonoida. We also have from Sonoida a multiple Chiano from Lightning Ridge. Oh, hey, I'll, I got I'll offer in a bottle of Gavi. Oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> what vintage? Whatever's out there. 2013. Oh, God. Well, I think that way. <laughs> I vote that last You just offered. Okay. We're going to go with Sonoida because actually good on five Sonoida one because she's the only one that expressed an opinion. We haven't tasted anything from Sonoida yet. So in this one you'll taste that tangerine note that I was talking about. So let me crack this open here. Sorry. Sorry. I'm taking pictures because that's the only picture of that one already. So multiple Triano is an Italian grape like Sangiovese. It comes from a different region though. It's more of a central Italian grape. It's not something that you see very often, no. But it is something that is becoming more common in Arizona. Oh, goodbye to all. Goodbye, my friend. So, Montepulciano. This one is 100% estate fruit from Sonoida. Now, Sonoida is actually the oldest AVA in Arizona. That dates back to 1983, which was the first commercial vintage of wine in Arizona. That was from Sonoida Wineries. Sonoida is the only AVA. Sonoida is also, like I said, the only AVA in Arizona. Do you know of any plans to petition uh, for AVAs in Arizona? Yes. Wilcox is going to be an AVA. The plan apparently is undergoing the final stages. It's been approved by the TTB as perfected, but it's not implemented yet. 
So Wilcox will eventually be in its own AVA, which is good because it's producing more wine than anyone else in the state right now. And where's your glass? There we go. Thank you, sir. Oh, so anyway, who has not had any? Okay, you guys, sorry. This is what you get for wandering around. This is why we don't have nice things. What grape is this again? Multiple Chiano, 100% Multiple Chiano. So what you'll notice on the nose and on the palate, you may have to hunt for this one a little bit because it is not as overt, but it's there. That tangerine note, which to me denotes Sonoida. This wine has also seen American and French oak. I know this because I talked to Anne Ronco from Montable Channel. I, if I remember correctly, this is a wine I reviewed on my blog. This has the, what I call the warm tinnitus smell, which, like if you're at a camping and you get your feet too close to the fire. The, uh, the wine term for that note is actually forest floor. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> I'll remember that. But yeah, it is something that um, is something that is denoted often of an older wine that's been oh, aging okay. oak. Um, case in point, this is a 2011. So it's one of their earliest vintages, actually. Um, so is that just like a, an age thing and an oak thing? Or age and oak, as well as a little bit possibly of retomyces, which sometimes can impart this really unique sort of forest floor slash um, barnyard characteristic to wine, makes it more sort of... Um, Hey you guys, if I get your attention real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt your uh, Sonoda wine drinking tangerine in class. Um, <laughs> in order to get out, this is where we really capture you. have to check in with us down at the shop and I give you a token, or I personally go walk you out and swipe you out. So, uh, that being said, stop down at the shop. If you need to go uh, early, let me know. Um, we're gonna buy a bottle of wine. Buy a bottle of wine, whatever. You don't have to. Dibs on the Gallia. I got information on a wine club. I've got information on our wine club and I've got uh, discount uh, coupons as well. Today, 15% off any of the wines uh, any, any, from anywhere around the world. Um, I'll give you 15% off the wines. I got a coupon here for 10% off if you want to come back in. Or you join our wine club, you get 12% off all day long. So, cool. that being said, can I add something? Can I add something? Oh. Just join the wine club. Yes, yes. I'll Just join the wine club. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's rustic almost. It's a great rustic style Italian red. And it reminds me a lot of the classic Italian reds that you get from some of the, or even from Greece. I remember one of my favorite ones I've ever had was this red wine from Greece. I have no idea what it was made from. It was a poured at a monastery that I was visiting. The nuns didn't know what grape it was. It was from a barrel that was donated to them. From the farmer down the road, for praying for the successful birth of their farmer's daughter. He gave them a barrel of wine, and that was their wine that they gave to guests. And 
to this day, it's another one of my favorite ones that I've ever had. And it had, it was very similar to this and a lot of that rustic character. It almost feels, you know, I think to a lot of palettes, it feels like a more true wine, like an old school wine, like something from the old days, so to speak. And so it resonates that. Is that Tawarn or is that... Partly Tawarn, but partly the style of oak and the yeast that was used and the aging. But not so much the actual grape. But a little bit of the grape. It's something I have noticed in a lot of multiple Chianos in Arizona, is that you get this characteristic of sort of a rustic quality. I mean, I've never... It's not a grape that you normally widely hear of, either, for that matter. So. Do they grow it in other parts of the, country, of the world? Uh, it's originally from Italy, so it's in mostly in Italy. There are some people growing it in Wilcox, um, as well as Sonoida, and also in uh, New Mexico. Caduceus often has a Velvet Slippers Club, which is that one club exclusive multiple Chiano from Luna Rosa Vineyards in New Mexico. Is this, um, is this the temperature that you normally serve? No, this is served a little bit under. Guys, listen up! Um, what's your name again? Kelly. Kelly has raised a very important point on this wine. This is not the normal serving temperature for this grape. It should be served a little bit warmer, and so it's a little colder than it should be. Wine temperature in general. Rule of thumb I have is A, when they say room temperature, they don't mean room temperature in Arizona. <laughs> room temperature in Arizona is usually 80. Room temperature in most of Europe where you're doing your wine is 65 to 70. Tops. So if you have a red in your cellar, you should chill it a little bit to get it to about 65 degrees. That's your general serving temperature for reds. For whites, you can go as low as 49, depending on the grape, depending on the varietal. Um, my haphazard rule of thumb is I try to serve my whites at between 49 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. I serve my rosés at about 50-55. I serve my reds at 55 to 65. Thank you. But also keep in mind that you can always warm up your wine. You cannot cool it down. Yeah. So start it, start it a little bit, start it a little bit cooler than you would normally serve it at. Because people are it all. Especially if you, especially if you decant it. If you decant the wine, it's going to warm up, you know, during that process because it's going to sit out. But otherwise, you know, we're 98.6 supposedly, right? It's going to warm up very quickly. So. Now what about, what, have you, what are you feeling about aerating? You know how they have those aerating mm -hmm. pumps that you put on the bottles? What, is that recommended? Is that well, you, can depend, you can aerate by, by sucking in air as you're tasting it. The rules for aeration are very similar to decanting. Yeah. And that's actually covered in a really great article in the latest issue of the Arizona Wine. My general rule of thumb is either... There's a great article in my general rule of thumb is that I will decant a wine if it's either very old, older than 10 years, or if it's a tannic varietal like, say, the Cabral Tanat. If I had a decanter, what I would have done is poured it in a decanter at the beginning of class. Now, can I ask if, so recently I was reading this article about um, wines, cork wines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We brought that up earlier about wines that get corks when they have that bad taste, like they spoil them. Uh -huh. So there was this thing that came out about recommendations on how to get rid of that. Where you warm up saran wrap in a glass bowl, pour your wine into it, 
honestly have no idea. I've not read this article. My general rule of thumb if the wine is corked, it's, um, pardon my language, but it's fucked. Yeah. Um, so you pour it out or use it to cook with. Okay, so this one said if you pour it in over like a ball of saran wrap, something about the wrap sucks out all that bad flavor and then your wine gets restored. And it just sounded crazy to me, but... I don't know. I mean, there may well be a chemical basis for that based on what the materials in the wine are producing that flavor, but I don't know enough about it having never heard that. So I can't honestly answer the question, but what I do is when I taste the wine in this port, it's gone, it's done. I pour it down the drain. I guess if you want to try it just to see it's spoiled anyways. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah I, I would be interested in trying that at some point. Yeah, it was just a ball of saran wrap, and I was like, really, that's simple, that sounds crazy, but... I yeah, I don't know. You're welcome. Pardon me. So I do have some left in these bottles of some of the wines. Some of them are not. And oh, good. There's my glass of Syrah. So one last thing before I stop the recording. Is there, is there any other questions? Alrighty. Does anyone have any more questions or comments before I close the recording? Anything they'd like me to cover? All right. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure to be here. Glad to be here. Hopefully, Carla and Sarah will invite me down for more shenanigans at some point because, like I said, I do not get down from my mountain very often. So, um, welcome to the big city. Yeah, I know. It's kind of strange and scary. <laughs> Oh, I don't know the right words or the language, and I'm not going to say anything. So that's what Students of Wine is all about. Um, so please let your friends know. Um, we're going to be posting uh, many other events and opportunities. Um, we're really excited to be working with Hidden Track Bottle Shop. Um, not only do we have the most wonderful view to be able to taste wine, but we have um, uh, two individuals who really, you know, love wine, want to be able to introduce wines to people at a price point that is not scary so that you can try it. And you know what? The worst thing that happens is you don't like it, but you don't feel like you've just, like, given up half of your, your 529 school <laughs> education plan for your child. Um, and, and that's pretty great. So we're so really excited. And Danielle as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. post on our uh, site, um, you know, a review, and let us know if you have some ideas. We've I've talked to some people. I know that there's some some thoughts about doing some some trips and, and being able to actually go to some of the wineries that we've talked about today, and we would absolutely love to do that. That's one of my favorite things to do, which is how I met Cody um, several years ago at the Passion Cellars. I hope I was not one of those dicks. You were not. Um, <laughs> You were wonderful and lovely, which is why I continue to be excited whenever you came in. And I promise because Scott was in the room, I did not overtly flirt with you. Maybe subtly, but not overtly. Well, if it was subtly, I didn't pick it up. I was at Passion Cellar, my brother and I had to walk up the stairs 
If I remember, I offered to help, but you rejected my help. We're New York women. We feel like we can do it. So, um, but thank you all. Um, feel free to continue to taste, and then absolutely go down, see what uh, Craig and Danielle have um, at the Hidden Track. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I actually had just gotten my bottle of Sauvignon um, a couple of days ago, and so I was so excited that I got to try it here before I opened my bottle there. So now I have it at home, and now I know what I should be drinking it with or who I should be serving it to. Um, so thank you. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Aerators, I use them on occasion. My rule for aeration is use them as you would a decanter. The thing about an aerator is that it works instantaneously versus then waiting for which is what you do with a decanter. You would let it sit in a open in the decanter for a few hours. Versus the aerator you pour it through makes that weird noise, and then it's ready to go. It's opened up. So they're okay to use, yeah. right? I mean, I would use them only, my rule of thumb would be, I would use them for either very young tannic reds. Very cheap ones. Or cheap red, or cheap ones. Or older. Like night and day when yeah. you use it. So it is an okay thing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I have one that I use myself. So. It'd be okay if it tastes better. Right? Yeah, exactly. If it makes it taste better, then why not? It does make a difference. So on cheap ones, exactly. I have uh, so I have one other announcement. Guys, Scott has an announcement. One other, one other announcement. Um, if you do go down to Hidden Track Bottle Shop and buy a bottle and you're not done with wine today they said you we could either come back up here and enjoy the bottle or there's an atrium right outside their bottle shop as long as we go out there and we take the cork out we can enjoy it there so just a an idea did you say party <laughs> yes now, I just wanted to also ask a question for the record. What was everyone's favorite wine here tonight? Syrah. Syrah? Sangiovese? Syrah. Lozen and the Montepulciano. For me, it's the Lozen and the Tanat, of course, for the reds. For the white, I'm going to have to go with the Saval Blanc. It's just such an interesting white that you don't really encounter. I have to go to Malvasia. That's my favorite. Yeah, like, I wish we had a Malvasia, but... My mission in life is to introduce people to Malvasia. So am I. Welcome to the cult of Malvasia. Yeah. yeah. Until next time, this is Cody from the Arizona Wine Monk signing off. I'm going to drink a little bit of wine here with the gang. Uh, that's again studentsofwine.com. Studentsofwine.com if you want to sign up for a class from Carla. Uh, follow me, of course, at the Arizona Wine Monk. And until next time, this is Cody, signing off.